Hello, welcome to Glittership episode 64. This is your host, Keffi, and I'm super excited to share this story with you. Today we have a piece of original fiction, Sabayashi Flies, by Sebastian Strange, and a poem, How to Exist in Between, by Danny McLaren. Danny McLaren is a queer and non-binary writer who uses they-them pronouns. They have been writing short fiction and poetry for as long as they can remember, but only entered the world of publishing this year. They are currently an undergraduate student majoring in gender studies. They often explore themes associated with mental health, gender, identity, and social justice in their work. They are an editor and co-founder of Alien Pub, an arts and culture magazine. How to Exist in Between Find a crack in the floorboards where you can hide. This will be your home. Don't worry if you can't fit now. Their words will make you feel small enough to fall through the slats eventually. Listen to the footsteps and laughter above. Hear how they stomp around with violent intent. Know they'd crush you if they knew you were here. Teach yourself to be quiet enough that no one pays you any attention. It's better to go unseen than draw the eye of someone unkind, someone with a word or two for people like you. Feel their eyes on you either way, and know that the questions about your hair, your clothes, your voice are already on their lips. Walk faster so that you're gone before they can speak. Take note of what they say when they think you can't hear. Scribble them all down in the back of your notebook, everything overheard in the back of a lecture hall, or on the bus, or to your mother. Save them for a time when you will need to be reminded why you exist, why you continue to exist. Ask them to call you by your name when they don't hold your tongue. When they ask if you are a boy or a girl, say no. You do not owe them an answer, least of all to a question for which you have none. Remember how they seem to take offense to your pronouns, as if your existence has anything to do with them. Know that these people are not worth your time. Know that one day you will find ones who are. Sebastian Strange writes from Ohio, but still feels like a New Englander. His fiction has been published in Mythic Delirium and Crossed Genres. Find him trying to figure out Twitter at Monstrous Moor. Sabayashi Flies was narrated by Maria Rose. Maria Rose is a graphic designer, writer, astrologer, classicist, sometimes Saturnine, mostly eccentric. You can hear her audiobook narration work in Messengers of the Right from University of Press Audiobooks or at Gallery of Curiosities podcast. Sabuyashi Flies by Sebastian Strange Read by Maria Rose Sophie Foucher advertised her solution to the age-old magic problem well. I can still remember the first night I stepped out of Ellen's dorm building, late, and looked up to see one of Foucher's billboards. A crisp square of white and silver featuring Foucher's trim torso and winning smile. Her large, dark eyes were fixed on the future, somewhere behind me and much higher up, and her hands clasped a glass pitcher full of shimmering silver. Nobody has to die, was written across the bottom. Foucher's spark. Some of the early adverts I heard 
had the outline of a raven by the product name or sketched on the glass container. The papers went briefly wild over it. She was said to be catering to the Galenites, who were a fringe element and shouldn't be catered to. Then everyone printed letters from Galenites, who supported Foucher and thought she was bringing in the future, and Galenites, who thought she was perverting everything Galen Guntram had stood for and ought to be stopped. How? They didn't specify. There was no law against taking Galen Guntram's name in vain. I just thought if you were really a Galenite, you would have to be pretty stupid to write into a paper, because your letters would probably get seized by the police and used to track you. It wasn't against the law to be a Galenite, yet. But it was considered unpatriotic and in bad taste, and in these days, those things could get you shot. L'Amérique la Belle. That's what my mother always muttered when she saw another death on the news. She was Japanese, not French, but she learned a little French from my father. Said she liked the sarcastic, slippery sound of it. My father came from France, but was Roma by birth. I don't mention that part to most people. I'm tired of being asked about living on the road. I don't know much about how my father lived, but I was born in America, in a slender apartment, number five in building, number four in the housing for the magicians America had imported from other countries. Mama told me the walls were so thin everyone heard me crying, and before long the doctor opened the door to a handful of women bearing gifts. They were all from different countries, and only one of them spoke broken French, and another knew a few textbook phrases in Japanese. But Mama said they managed to understand each other, Food and smiles and helping hands when it was needed, that was the language of people far from home. The crying child says there is need, and in return you silently say, I will help you, and an equally silent promise is made in return. Mama told me what all the women looked like, so if ever I met them again, I could pay them back. I never quite knew what she expected me to do. These days I could offer them a spell. But back then, I had my chubby fingers dipped in ink, and four-fifths of my soul signed over to the Massachusetts Department of Magicians before I could write my name. The price for the housing and the monthly allowance. My father had already used two of his spells when he'd heard about the program, and they'd wanted magicians with more to spare. So he'd thrown in his firstborn child. And amazingly, America shrugged and accepted. L'Amérique la Belle. Foucher's spark appeared in my first year of college, and I tried it at the end of my second. My father was dying, of a sickness nobody could quite explain or pinpoint, so I'd started drinking a little to see if it dulled the pain. It didn't do much, but at the third party I got into, the boy presiding over it all, Jack, English, stupidly rich, produced a bottle of Foucher's and announced he'd be mixing drinks with it for anyone brave enough to try. Ellen, ignoring my horrified whispers, was the first to swagger forward and offer herself as a test subject. I watched as she swirled the silver liquid into her half-depleted drink, swigged the rest, and grimaced. It tastes nasty, she declared, then shuddered, put her hand out in the air with a look of wonder, more as if she were high than drunk, and snapped her fingers. Feathers materialized. 
tiny and glittery and perfect, snap, and they became bubbles before they touched the floor. She snapped again, but nothing happened. Turning around, she thrust her glass out at Jack. I don't care how horrible it tastes, she said. Fill it up. I went up somewhere in the second wave. The people who weren't brave enough to leap forward immediately, but didn't want to feel left out. Jack dripped a tiny amount into my glass, giving me a half-smile. I couldn't tell if it was cruel or flirtatious. Either was equally unwelcome. Foucher's goes down smooth, but sick-tasting, like meat and polluted earth. But in your belly, it sings. It warms you from the inside out and makes you feel invincible. And when I held out my hands, a rain of jewel-like beetles pattered down into them. They clung tight to me, friendly but not invasive, crawling over my shoulders and tickling inside my shirt collar. They scared away a boy or two who got too near, and I whispered thanks to them. I got drunk enough in the early morning to walk home, wanting to show my father, but by the time I got there, they dissolved into nothing, leaving a thin, dry layer on my skin like the aftermath of a soap bubble. My father believed me anyway, listened to my babbled descriptions of their beauty with his hand on my hand. They sound wonderful, Sabiyashi, he told me. I'm sure your mother would have been proud. My mother was a beetle enthusiast. Her great-great-grandmother had discovered the Sabiyashi beetle, and my mother lived joyously in the shadow of that glory. She died when I was twelve, but almost died before I was born. She stowed away on a ship out of Japan when she was eighteen, having presumably exhausted the store of interesting beetles in Japan, and was found mid-voyage. It was between wars. But women have rarely been treated kindly on the sea, especially when they don't speak the language the sailors know. My mother spoke only a few words of English, the language they tried to address her in, and lost them all in her fright. She only survived because one of the men spoke up for her, pointed out to his fellows that she seemed harmless enough. She never told me that man's name, or what he looked like, and she told me why shortly before she died. He wanted something from me, Sabuyashi, she said, something I didn't want to give. It's not important whether he got it or not. What's important is that you recognize there are people who will offer help and not truly mean it. Learn to recognize those who mean it and those who don't. I don't know if I've learned to tell the difference yet, but my mother escaped from the man's clutches when they stopped at their next port. She dove into the winding streets of a city she didn't know, with nothing but her case full of beetle specimens, and somehow survived. That's always how she put it, somehow, with a little shrug. How? I'd ask. I was practical and stubborn as a child. Uncertainties bothered me. Oh, you know, by the grace of God, with magic. But you're not a magician. She'd always shrug and start humming. After ten minutes of humming and fruitless questions on my part, she'd pick up the story again, as if she'd never left it, telling how a Sabuyashi beetle had led her to my father. He had met her when he took his mother to the local doctor and found a strange woman hovering around the doctor's doorstep, examining the beetle nests through a magnifying glass. And he fell in love, she proclaimed. 
the first moment he saw me. I don't believe you, I said. I was a rude kid. Nobody does that. He did. He fell in love the moment he saw me. I could see it in his eyes. All because Sabuyashi beetles had brought us together. And magic. Even at nine, I knew how magic worked. Magic comes from the soul, I told her, with the patronizing tone only available to ninety-year-old professors and nine-year-old children. It can't be produced without sacrifice, and you can only do five spells before you die. Magic doesn't make people meet. It did with us, she'd say, and start humming again. I thought she was mean, at nine years old. I'd just begun to comprehend that I'd had a chunk of my life signed away before I could hold a pen, and it seemed incredibly unfair. I hated magic and resented my father, and it seemed callous to love them both so obviously in my presence. Now it just seems callous of the world to take her before I could comprehend how brave she was. I used to blame God, but I'm old enough to put two and two together now and know that God didn't make her vanish into thin air. I don't know whether it was some idiot's grudge held from the Second War against anyone with a Japanese face, or a killer who targeted any kind of woman, or a goddamn accident someone decided to cover up in a shallow grave. I only know she's gone, and magic can't bring back the dead. Not even Foucher's can manage that. But we're working on it. Sophie Foucher told me, during my interview at the Spark store, I don't believe in impossible. I nodded, awe-stricken. I hadn't been prepared to meet her. I'd been assigned an interview with the store manager, a thin man called Martin, with a galenite tattoo on his upper arm that had been awkwardly converted from a raven into a constellation in the night sky. But Sophie had slid through the door five minutes past the assigned time, announced brightly that she liked to drop by stores and interview various candidates herself, and taken my resume from my surprised hand. Nobody has to die, I quoted, finding my voice. Sophie smiled brilliantly, and my heart flopped from side to side. You got it. Of course, that referred to the old way of doing magic, the... She gestured, frowning. Ripping your soul into pieces thing? Honestly, how did that get off the ground? What 15th century geniuses discovered you could rip your soul, your God-given life, out of your body and decided it was a good idea? I shrugged helplessly. My father had called it the most beautiful sacrifice possible. He'd never been a Galenite, but he'd died in a way they all dreamed of, using his last spell in a selfless gesture. I'm already dying, he'd said to me, gently, as I screamed. Don't get excited. He somehow made me love and hate him, with everything he did. Sophie brought me back to the real world by exclaiming over the front page of my resume, which she'd finally gotten around to reading. Sabuyashi. Like the beetle. Yes. My hands clenched tight on my knees. I'd asked the department for permission to use a less strange name on job applications, but they'd denied me. I don't doubt they'd rather see me jobless, surviving only on the magician's allowance. I'm descended from the woman who discovered it. Never heard of who found it, but that is a wonderful coincidence. 
What do you think we use to give vouchers its silver color? The exoskeletons? Exactly. Sabuyashi. I do believe this is a coincidence ordained by God. Sophie held out her hand, and I took it, not sure of what she was doing, not sure what to do when she clasped it with both of her own. She looked into my eyes. You're not getting the counter job, she announced. Before my face had time to fall, she continued. You're coming with me to where we make vouchers. You're going to help me bring our magic to the whole wide world. I didn't believe my mother when she said you could fall in love in a moment. I wasn't sure I believed my own lips when they said, That sounds wonderful, Miss Foucher. The whole meeting with Sophie felt like a dream. But it became easier to believe when I went to the MDM the next day and filed my right-to-move paperwork, and easier yet a week later when I demonstrated, in front of a very annoyed committee, that I could down a bottle of vouchers and produce magic without harming my precious soul. Therefore, Ellen announced, tapping my paperwork and leveling her best negotiator gaze at the men, there is no reason for my client to undergo surveillance and live in state-mandated housing. She will be able to produce the two spells she still owes you at any time, with no danger that she'll use her magic up before then. They'd argued, primarily that the formula to Foucher's spark was still a company secret, locked down tighter than the Coca-Cola recipe, and it was sure to be discovered to be made out of some unpatriotic material soon. And then where would I be? I finally signed an agreement stating I'd return to them in a hot second when Foucher's folded, or risk jail time. Then we skipped town before they could figure out I wouldn't come back if there was a gun to my head, and that Ellen wasn't formerly a lawyer yet. Sophie had already gone ahead, but when Ellen left me at the train station with a kiss to the cheek that made my heart jump, I found myself in the company of three other women on the way to Foucher's headquarters. They all looked whiter than me, but they were polite enough. One told me stories about her great-grandmother, who was Chinese, and I was forgiving of her ignorance. We pulled our money for a bottle of wine and drank to our beautiful futures in the dining car, too full with thoughts of magic to be hurt by mundane things. I discovered that while I'd assumed my role would be in managing things behind the scenes, Sophie had something different in mind for me. You're going to be one of the faces of Spark, she told me, positioning me in front of a mirror. We'll have you photographed, perhaps painted as well. You'll do demonstrations at parties. The girl who escaped the old way of magic and embraces the new. You're perfect for this, Sabuyashi. Looking at her brilliant eyes in the mirror, I couldn't tell her no. She lingered even after she'd passed me into the hands of dresses and makeup artists, and I didn't know whether to be pleased or terrified. She was more than a decade my senior and looked like a woman accustomed to getting what she wanted. I doubted what she and I wanted would quite match. Women made my heart sing, but nobody ever roused my body. I could understand the appeal of sex in theory, but shied from it in practice. Yet, for the moment, I couldn't help but enjoy her admiring glances, the compliments she offered on every potential dress. I had always dressed plainly, 
especially during the years in college that I felt lower than I ever had before. But I didn't dislike pretty things. I just couldn't quite figure out how they worked. It was a strange, disquiet joy to watch myself transform in the mirror from a recognizable slip of a woman to a glittering stranger. They swathed me in silver and white, painted my eyelids with silver dust. This is made with Sabuyashi beetles as well, the girl on makeup told me, meant kindly, I knew, but it made my stomach churn for a moment. I wasn't sure why. My mother loved beetles, but nature was far more vicious than man to them. You couldn't get sad about them dying without being sad every three seconds, and I didn't want to be sad. I never wanted to be sad again. And finally, they put a glass jug in my hands. I felt myself slip into a dreamlike state again as I was photographed. I felt as if I were looking at myself from the outside, from below that billboard years ago. We're working on new slogans now, I heard Sophie saying distantly, as if I was underwater. Something to work with how angelic you look, how you don't have to be trapped as a state magician anymore, whole and free. The Sabuyashi flies, a woman pinning my skirt suggested. Clever, but I'm not sure if enough people will get it. The Sabuyashi beetle doesn't fly when it's silver, I said. It's only after it sheds the silver coat that it flies. It's brown, then, and has three markings. That's nice, sweetheart. The woman pinning my dress said, nobody will know that. The camera flashed again and again. People cooed and argued, and I swam around the space above myself. I only drifted back down when someone took a jug out of my hands, and Sophie put a hand on my shoulder. I must run now, she said. But we'll see each other soon enough. Get some rest, say some prayers. You look dazed, darling. Someone else was holding my hand. I turned my head groggily to find a woman wiping off some silver glitter that had stuck to my wrist. She had paused and was frowning at the paper-thin scar that ran up the inside of it. I pulled my hand away and said to Sophie, I'm just tired. Too much of a good thing. Perhaps that was right. Perhaps that was why alarm bells kept ringing inside my head. I wasn't used to good things happening, much less so many of them at once. I already knew my brain was slightly broken, had been since I was a child. That shouldn't stop me from enjoying life. There's no way I can say that my sadness broke after my father died without seeming heartless. But it did. It broke like a storm or a sudden overflowing of tears after several hard weeks, transforming from a continual dull ache of depression into the rich depths of grief. I wept more than I ever had before, and after a while, my tears dried. I could get out of bed again. I felt hungry. I could picture tomorrow in my head, not next week or next month, but tomorrow was a victory in itself. My greatest fear was that I hadn't really escaped the cloud that had hung over me for so long, that this was only a temporary lift, a hill rising out of the darkness and before long, I'd be going down again. I'd barely survived it last time. My greatest hope was that I could keep it at bay, because I had a theory 
and so far, it had worked. When I was a teenager, just before I'd entered college, the department had demanded one of the spells I owed them. I'd been transported from my front door to a helicopter, to a slimy bank over a rapidly flooding town, pointed at a broken dam, and told to fix it. I didn't remember the next few hours. My father told me, later, when he was bringing me tea in bed, that I'd mended the dam and replaced all the water where it had come from, then screamed and collapsed. I still don't remember how I'd ripped a piece of my own soul out. Nobody could explain how it happened. Some could do it, and some couldn't, like the ability to raise a single eyebrow or curl your tongue a certain way. But afterward, I'd gone to college and started to barely make it to my classes and started to stay in bed longer each day and find it harder to eat and wash my hair and do all the little things that make up staying alive. I needed the spell to be the reason that it had happened, because if that was true, I'd be okay. With Voucher's Spark, I'd never have to damage my soul again, and even if I had only dubious faith in God, I did value whatever intangible thing lived inside me. If I had to sell Spark to keep it whole, I'd do it gladly. I tried to make myself stop wondering what it was made of, other than Sabuyashi wings. Drinking had never quite worked for me. I didn't have the tolerance for alcoholism, but magic, that I could get drunk on. I went to parties and met polite, shriveled old men, who I'd later learn held some government office I had never heard of. Occasionally, I'd get something familiar, like a mayor, which was refreshing. Once the government personage was a stunning red-haired woman, her eyes bruised with lack of sleep. I poured her and I small glasses of Foucher's and showed her how to make little butterflies appear from her cupped hands. Her smile stayed imprinted on my mind for weeks, shadowing me at other parties, making me smile when there was nothing to smile about. Most people didn't want to touch Foucher's themselves, not yet despite its popularity among the richer parts of the new generation. So I'd swig a bottle, in as genteel a manner as possible, trying not to grimace over its taste, and do requests. After Sophie put a blanket ban on anyone asking for adult material, things got more fun. I'd pull coins out of people's ears, produce tame snakes out of ladies' hats. I'd move on to bigger things folding napkins between my hands and shaking birds out of the folds, making a rainstorm briefly appear around the house when the weather was favorable. When the weather wasn't, I spent fifteen minutes explaining clouds to the belligerent guests, internally bemused over how much they wanted rain. It had rained at my father's funeral. I made myself a living cloak of sabuyashi beetles and enjoyed the way people cringed away or looked at me with fascinated eyes. I spent half an evening showing an adventurous girl how to make sparks appear when she snapped her fingers, and left the party dizzy with the taste of the wine she'd been drinking on my lips. I made a barren rosebush bloom in three different colors. I discovered the first small, caustic burns around my lips and eyes three weeks in. Sophie spaced my performances out after that, 
murmured something reassuring about Spark being mildly irritating to the body in excess, but not truly dangerous. The burns faded, but I began to dream. Not nightmares, but strange dreams. That I was going to a corner store in a part of town that I'd never been to. That I was hurrying home through a side street where all the signs were in Spanish, but I could read them easily that I was standing over a man with a gun in my hands, and I was trying to remember something I'd read in a book about disposing of bodies. What is Foucher's spark made of? I asked Sophie once. She gave me an odd, gentle look. Honey, ask when you really want to know. I didn't ask again. Blood was the one thing I couldn't forget. My father had never been a Galenite, but he'd admired their spirit. I understood that better after he died, and that answered another question, why he'd chosen the path of a magician for me, before I could choose for myself. He was confident that I'd find the same beauty in it, no matter how I was restricted. Galen Guntram had been a state magician, after all, but he'd used his magic impulsively for love and healing and other selfish things, until they cast him aside in disgust. Then he died young saving some other lives with his last spell, and so got martyred when he might have only been a failure. I'd never been a Galenite, and when I was younger I couldn't imagine tomorrow, much less finding beauty in a life that had already been signed away. Still, I can't remember exactly what prompted the night I'd called a nurse to come see my father in the morning, locked myself in the bathroom, and opened a medical textbook to the section on veins. I still can't remember the pain or my father's voice, just the slow, mesmerizing drip of blood from my body, and how it had finally stopped when my father closed his hands over my wrists. Blood, clearly, was what Foucher's was made of. It's more complicated than that, Sophie said. We were sitting in her office. I'd pulled myself away from party preparation. Already dripping silver and white, to sit in the chair across from her and point out the obvious. It's the essence, the soul it carries, and people donate it freely, you know. What people? I could already guess, like I'd known about the blood for a long time, while turning my eyes away from it. Criminals, darling. Prisoners. Sophie smiled. Same thing, isn't it? They're even compensated for it. Not much, but more than they deserve— but it might cause upset, you know. People wouldn't like to think of themselves. Drinking blood. L'Amérique la belle. Exactly, but it's not like some people don't know. I tell the people I do business with, they come around to it all right. I look down at my hands. So, instead of damaging your own soul, it's outsourced to dozens of other people. That doesn't seem right. Sabuyashi, Sophie said, putting down her pen. These are people with previously damaged souls, thieves and liars and killers, not people like us. Good people. That's right, honey. She paused, and a note of regret entered her voice. But if it's too much of a problem for you, we could let you go. You're perfect for this, but we can always find another girl who's perfect for it if you don't want... I do want, I said, and I knew she could hear the truth in my voice. 
I want to keep doing this. I want the magic. She touched my chin and smiled at me. Then I'll see you tonight. I did want the magic. Foucher's spark was how magic should work, I felt. A potion you could drink, that anyone could drink. Snap, and you can make a little rainstorm. Snap, and you can make a beetle that sang like a lark. Snap, and you could kiss a girl without feeling quite so terrified. Good little magics. Not the complex set pieces and dramatic gestures of soul spells. No pain. Just the unquiet dreams left behind in the blood, in the silver threads of soul woven through it. I stood at the heart of the group, my lips sticky with glowing paint and my eyes dusted with sabuyashi silver, and I smiled at a man I vaguely recalled worked with the president. I held the bottle of Foucher's before me and asked, as I had asked a dozen times before, Do you want to see some magic? My mother had spoken of magic, like a force beyond our control, and I had called it sacrifice. Maybe we were both right. I felt like I was watching from outside of my own body as I opened my hand and let the bottle fall to the floor to shatter in wet pieces on the hardwood. But I was inside myself, fully and painfully, when I met Sophie's betrayed eyes across the room and called on my own soul. Nobody would recognize the beetles as Sabuyashi beetles, I knew, because they were brown instead of silver. I saw a camera flash as I scattered into a million pieces, and I wondered if I'd make the front page. I had to laugh at myself for my own self-absorption. Then I was lost, whirling in a million directions. I was on the doorframe and crawling over a senator's shoes and buzzing in Sophie's snarling face, and a hundred or so of me were escaping out the window. Twelve or so of me started wondering if beetles had souls, and a dozen others were crushed and killed, but that left more than enough to get the job done. Sophie didn't fear me, because no matter what I did, I was one girl, and she might not know whether to fear me as a thousand or so beetles. She should. A thousand or so beetles can whisper a secret to a thousand or so people, and they'll pass it on to more, and yet more, in my wanderings, maybe I'll meet the women who greeted my birth with gifts, I think. I think, in return for their kindness, I'll give them a story. It's about how I lived because of my mother and my father and the grace of God and magic. It's about how I'm trying to change the world by the smallest fraction so others can change it further. It's about how the Sabuyashi beetle gathers small particles of silver and plasters them into its exoskeleton, and nobody yet knows why. Some of them are crushed under the weight, and some of them shed that layer and fly. How to Exist in Between is copyright Danny McLaren, 2018. Sabayashi Flies is copyright Sebastian Strange, 2018. This recording is a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license, which means you can share it with anyone you'd like, but please don't change or sell it. Our theme is Aurora Borealis by Bird Creek, available through the Google Audio Library. You can support Glittership by checking out our Patreon at patreon.com slash subscribing to our feed, or by leaving reviews on iTunes. 
You can also pick up a free audiobook by going to audibletrial.com slash Glittership or buying your own copy of the spring 2018 issue at Glittership.com slash buy. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back soon with a reprint of A Memory of Wind by Susan Jane Bigelow.